Welcome to Discography, the music podcast that delivers the objective truth about the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever existed. I am your host, Joe Kennedy. And I'm Dave Gebro. My co-host. That's true. As it were. And good pally. My good pally. Today's episode kind of takes us back to the, the uh, 1970s, which we are old enough to remember, just barely. It was a good time. It was a simpler time. What are some of the things you remember from the 1970s? I remember those shirts that had uh, the iron-on letters and iron-on patterns. I had Rocky ones. I had BGU's ones. I had an R2-D2 one. Oh, God. I, I love those. Um, the 70s, I liked all the fads that happened in the 70s. The bell bottoms, the, sh- the shag carpeting, the real gaudy interior design. You probably hate that. You like that. Uh, um, at the stuff. time, it just seemed normal, you know, um, but it, like it would last forever. There would never be any other. We had the, uh, the wallpaper in the living room that was like the forest, the trees, the forest oh, kind yes. of thing. Yeah, it's a good time. <clears throat> That's amazing. I, I was, was up until like the nineties. I was actually <laughs> uh, this is an odd story, but I was I did Big Brother, Little Brother, mm-hmm. and I had a little brother. And I only had him a couple times uh, because uh, there was some weirdness with his grandma, who he lived with. His grandma lived in a house that was completely enshrouded in jungle, and it had, it had piped in jungle noises too. <laughs> so you walk in and you are transported entirely. That's out not of a seventies thing. That's just a weirdo person thing. Exactly. But you went to the wallpaper deal. You ever get into Dynamite magazine? You into that? Into? I never got out of How it. How about pizzazz? Bananas. Bananas magazine. Pizzazz was really the one that that was my. I don't jam. remember pizzazz. pizzazz was Dynamite like a, was a big thing. Dynamite me. was made more early '80s, I guess. Now that I now that I think about it. Uh, yeah, late '70s, early '80s. Yeah, pizzazz was like Marvel Comics, and that was like their like version of like Cream or something. Not even Cream, like hit. Right, like, right. like it was like their teeny bopper kind of. I see. I, I think it was aimed at tweens, but it was like Marvel Comics. That one passed me by, but I remember the bookmobile would come by. You'd order <laughs> Dynamite and bananas, and right? Of course, not mad and cracked. Because you have to go down to the newsstand for that job. Right. Uh, anyway, uh, so, Joe, well, on this episode of Discography, We're turning the spray cans, this time on the Bee Gees. We're re- returning to their 1970s. We continue to peak. spray them. We continue. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're kind of at the beginning of a, of a new, um, you might say, a new phase uh, yeah, now we enter a, a completely new phase for them. They've been uh, they've been a valid concern for ten years at this point. They're kind of running out of steam on the sort of soft rock, maudlin, sappy wuss ballads. They're kind Not, of you're being very generous. They ran out of steam, and then they continued running out of steam on an unreleased record that has a shitty title. So now we're at phase four, on top of the world. 1974 to 1980. Now, I want to clarify this, okay? Because most people will say, 1974? What in the fuck, Dave? They really started uh, fashioning and and really burnishing their sound that following year during main course. And yes, you'd technically be correct. But let's get something straight. 1974 is Mr. Natural, is the transitional record, and all the seeds of their greatness are sprinkled throughout. Am I not right, Joseph? Yeah, this is where they kind of start uh, dipping their toe in the R&B waters, and they're kind of, uh, there's some kind of pillowy Fender Rhodes kind of jams on this, and they kind of... This is uh, also the first one to be produced by Arif Martin. Yeah, and they start kind of, uh, you know, including some funk, 
And um, they're not really ready to fully move on from the limp wuss ballad kind right. of format. They kind of hedge their bets. and um, But yet it's kind of cool. Like it works. It blends all together. It doesn't feel like a just an, a dumping ground for songs. It coheres. Yeah, this is a, uh, a uh, definitive like transitional kind of album. And this is the kind of record where we're talking about Mr. Natural now. That This is uh, 1974. Mm-hmm. This is the kind of records that I hope to find on this podcast. These kind of interesting turning points. And um, when you're listening to them all in a row, you can kind of really see how this is, you know, a, a key. You can hear the train run out of steam and then reignite. It's cool. Yeah. This does feel like a rejuvenation for sure. They're trying something different. It was much needed. Um, and, uh, so many great songs, man. Charade, throw a penny, which goes into down the road. Did you say charade? Charade. Sorry. I'm so sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry that please edit that. Um, (laughs) Throw a Penny, which then segues into Down the Road. That's a serious departure for them, and I love it. I really love it. Voices is incredible, the title track. Yeah, they, and then that, Dogs is the beginning of the falsetto. Yeah, they may, they, they've got a whole different palette here. They're kind of in a, and they're, they've kind of given up the acoustic guitar based, you know, folky, maudlin piano ballads, and they're kind of in the world of, they have more like a funk R&B kind of palette. Clavinet, Fender Rhodes. More like a head-nodding thing, not necessarily a dance deal, but you could dance to it. Yeah, it's a step on the way um, to, the, to, that, to the disco sound that they would soon... This is definitely not disco yet. Um, it's, it's on the beginning stages, and as you mentioned... Um, they discovered the the uh, what I call the banshee falsetto. So um, you know they had already sang in Bee Gees ish falsetto on some of their previous tracks. Now, how can you mend a broken heart? Has that kind of whispery, airy falsetto, kind of more traditional falsetto. But this one, they kind of discovered the banshee sound. He broke through the glass ceiling <laughs> of his lungs. It's and kind of up in the you know, <laughs> kind of up in that sort of hyena kind of range. And why is it just like it, you know, even though they, you know, had their ups, they had their downs, uh, since all this time, um, it always sounds and feels so good to hear that. It voice. does. It's a strange sound, really. It's a pretty idiosyncratic, uh, way of singing. Like yeah. it's, it's a, it's a weird. So it was discovered during this song dogs and it really is just a, a kind of a background vocal during a bridge. Uh, not anything major, it just kind of slips by. Um, but then the next record, which we'll get to in a minute, then he re- they really capitalize on it. Mr. Natural, uh, I give that a f- I give that four stars. Yeah, it's it's definitely side two fizzles out a little bit, and um, the the title cut is on side two, but the rest of most of the good stuff is on side one. It's it little, is. it's a little bit front loaded, but uh, yeah, interesting record. I give this four stars. No bad songs, just a couple of w- weaker songs. Yeah, but the ones that are really interesting are you know kind of like you many mentioned, throw a penny, Sharon. Right, Sherrod. Um, I stand corrected. <laughs> um, but then I say they, that because he says it very uh, prominently. He does. In my Sherrod. I feel like a fool in a bath of Fender Rhodes as well. Um, I have so it then, spelled in my notes C H R A A A A H D E. Nice. You really kept with their tradition. Yes. Yeah. Um, so then they crossed paths fortuitously with Eric Clapton. Um, and he said, hey, you guys should go down to uh, Florida and make a record at this place, Criteria Studios. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, so they did. And they uh, actually believe stayed in the house that Eric Clapton had rented for his shitty record. Mm-hmm. And uh, it turned out, I guess, it was really good advice because the album that was made there 
was 1975's Main Course. Which has two uh, very seminal singles on them where they kind of really invented and discovered their own take on disco, um, which is still kind of has not fully taken over the world yet. They kind of helped that to happen. Um, they have a particularly very commercial take on disco, and they they they. Uh, Quick shout out, Blue Weaver. This is his first record. Right, yeah, you can take it's, it from here because I know guy. you know him. Yeah, Blue Weaver's the keyboard guy. Um, He's awesome, and and by the way, kind of a key his, member of the team. Yeah, like yeah. his keyboard stuff on "How Deep Is Your Love," which comes later. That's his stuff. Right, yeah. He's, he's, he's a key member um, for the, pretty much this whole period. You know, again, this is... Uh, th- th- now they're kind of really full-on full disco, um, and uh, it's, a, it's a radically different sound. Right, off, right when you put this record on, it really kind of jumps out of the speakers. It starts off with Nights on Broadway. Big hit for them. Definitely a song I remember really well from my childhood. And then Jive Talking. Jive Talking is nuts. Yeah, even a bigger hit that, for them. That's my favorite song on the record. I mean, that's that's a staggering song. It's 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 up there with all their best work. Yeah, yeah. And it's got maybe the most danceable seven four figure ever. Created. And you know, you know what that's inspired by, right? That's when he would go over the bridge to go to Criteria every day from where he was staying. Mm-hmm. That was a ticka 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 of the oh, bridge. Oh, oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There was a, yeah that's kind of the intro rhythm. There, yeah. There's the part, the instrumental part, the, the little synth lick that goes do 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 Yeah, yeah, do, do. I love so that's that. So that. uh, that's actually in 7-4, and they make it sound seamlessly kind of funky. They kind of just play the straight disco beat through it, and it kind of ends up like when you make 7 plus 7, it's 14, so it comes out as an even number again. Um, so a little kind of mathy thing in there. That's I um, love when math gets actually, funky. It's pretty sweet. You should feel math in your ass, not your head. I tried that's to feel it. When, I, when, never feel when it Isaac Newton invented calculus, it, it, it was mostly because he felt it in his ass. <laughs> that's documented proof. Um, so <laughs> there's a few ballady kind of songs in here. They're still kind good of good ones though. Baby, still, as you turn away, edge of the universe. Yeah, some of that I don't really like. I like that stuff. Uh, Wind of change, really Fanny. Songbird is not as good, but I don't think it's bad. Yeah, they also um, come on over is great. They also kind of um, great pedal steel. They they get into um, th- this whole period where they're that's their the kind of their disco reign of glory is um, the 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 other sound they kind of always have going is kind of this soft rock like yacht rocky sort of thing that kind of takes on the a real seventies like bedroom vibe in this period. So there's the, you know, Fanny is kind of like that. It's kind that's of blue. That's blue weaver, man. Yeah. It kind of exists in the zone between disco and soft rock. Um, I had never heard that song before. It was kind of a hit. It was, it went to number 12 on the chart. And um, you called it Fanny, yeah. not be Fanny parenthesis, oh, be tender it. with my love, close parens. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's the actual full title. Close parens is actually written out. They as do. The uh, <laughs> they do. The, they do the banshee voice in that one. That's a good one. That's on the playlist. Yeah, yeah. That's a yeah. Wind term. of change. There's good. There's a bunch. They of do good a lot. Ones. They they fully <laughs> embrace the banshee thing on this Look, one. Look, I don't they think do it, a lot. I don't think it's a perfect record. I give it four stars. Generally, I think it's a little overrated compared to Mister Natural because Mister Natural was the exciting stumbling upon the origins of a new sound. This is like it's already sort of encased. Yeah, I also gave this four um you know it's pretty solid there's there's another thing i kind of like about we're kind of in their full-on disco period now and you know they reach such massive heights that um i was surprised doing this how there's not really that much of it there's a couple of disco records there's what, like three and a half or something disco records uh-huh. that, that were there and even those aren't really full-on disco all the time there's not really a giant reservoir of 
full-on Bee Gees disco songs. No, you'd have to actually uh, collate something like what we're doing, but it'd be pointless because mm-hmm. we already did it. Right. So go on Spotify, go on Discography. there's one song on Main Chorus that kind of is in a category of songs that I'm interested in, and there's a bunch of here, which are kind of like... Which one? Uh, a Wind of Change. Yeah, great song. Which it was not a hit, but it's like on an alternate universe timeline, it was like as big a hit as one of their other disco songs. Definitely going on a playlist. So, it's a um, great one. There's a bunch of those in here that are kind of like almost as good as the big smash hits, but that you, you're not sick of hearing a million times. So. Yeah, Sleeper greats. If that's kind of your thing um there's a good it's certainly our thing it's my thing because here we are i i'm the kind of person that imagines alternative timelines where songs like wind of change were smash hits right because that sounds like you yeah because we retired early (laughs) or something like that um 1976 children of the world now i want to talk just a little bit about backstory Mm -hmm. just for a second um this was a huge album for them uh, you Should Be Dancing went to number one. You got Love So Right and Boogie Child, uh, also big hits. So they recorded at the same studio, Criteria. At first, Richard Perry came in, you know, at the time he was sort of a superstar producer. But after a couple weeks, it seemed like it wasn't working out. So the Bee Gees decided to produce themselves, uh, with Barry Gibb mainly taking the the active role, along with an engineer named Carl Richardson, then they added a young musician and uh, someone to help them arrange named Albi Galutin. I haven't seen a YouTube video on how to pronounce his name properly, so I hope I'm not... Albi Galutin, he's kind of a big producer name. He did okay. a lot of stuff in the okay. biz over the years. So he's, he was very young then. This is one of the first things he did. He came on as advisor. Now, this was the team that saw them through the next four years. Now we're at the imperial phase. This is kind of the... This lasted for four years. One bizarre piece of trivia... Guess who plays percussion on You Should Be Dancing? Mm, it's uncredited? Yes. Who is it? Steven Stills. Oh, cool. He was in town snorting coke instead of actually going on a tour with Neil Young, who snubbed him during the tour with a telegram that said, eat a peach. And so we hung out with the Bee Gees and did percussion while high on cocaine. So <laughs> they shredded it. <laughs> that's right. That's right. He played some fierce bongos on that. <laughs> that's right. He did take some fierce bongos. You know, not for rips. nothing. Whoever did play the bongos on that was, was killing it. Thank you, so Steven. Steven. And at that era, he really wasn't doing much else of anything worthy of note. But in any case, Love So Right is fantastic, right? Ban- Banshee voice ballad. Right. Lovers. So rubbery sounding Lovers and modern. Is, I really Lovers like that. is really bonkers. Lovers made me think, um, you know, I that's a song I will definitely be listening to. I was not really aware of it before. It's a little bit campy. Um, and it kind of made me question, like, what is it about this period that I really like so much? I mean, s- some of these songs are like, I mean, they have, they have some camp factor. You know, there's, there's yeah. kind of like porn-tastic kind of wah-wah guitars happening. But then it's and like also crazy synths and like you, you, Yeah, but then there's also a lot of, of skill and um, craftsmanship involved in it. And, and this, the songs, you know, let's be honest, the songs fucking slap. Yeah, songs, you they know, really, really do. I mean, um, you know, now every, songs. everything is locked in. I mean, these guys are on motherfucking fire now. I mean, they're like a machine cranking it out. If there wasn't, <clears throat> you know, Kaminsky Park... I mean, this could have kept going and going a lot longer if you know there weren't other factors in the way. But uh, in any case, 
I love this record. I give it four and a half stars. Yeah, I gave it the same, four and a half. Um, there's. Um, oh, by the way, Subway's on this. Yeah, that's which, another one that's kind of like um, one of those alternate timeline hits. Exactly. There's a, bu- there's a bunch of those. Um, there's 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 a couple. Other Subway ones. should have been huge, you, man. You stepped into my life is another one that um, right. these are all these are all songs that could have been hit Can't singles. Can't keep a good man down, Boogie yeah. Child. The, Rob, I mean uh, Barry's songwriting just kind of fits like a glove with the disco format, you know. Um, he, he can kind of pull out these big hooks. And by the way, this has become almost entirely a Barry lead vocal experience by this right, point. Right, right. These Barry guys sings. are pushing the background. By the way, Maurice, I know for sure, is suffering from murderous alcoholism at this point. Yeah, Barry's singing and is everything. Very active. And is, it is way out front. And the other two guys are kind of like backup singers. Right. Um, more so even than usual. He, Barry, and by the Barry's way, kind of by the way with, with, I should say, without apparent, uh, apparently without animosity. Yeah, because, because they were just... They always went where things they felt needed to go. Yeah. So it would be whomever forward. So when they when the public eventually got sick of that falsetto sound, the Robin and Maurice came up and started writing songs again. Mm-hmm. Um, but in any case, we will get to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so then we have a double live album, which we're not going to rate. Yeah, but, we kind um, of uh, we don't. That's we kind of have a no live album policy unless, unless, unless it's, it's right. crucial. But I just want to say, just because I had so much experience with it when I was a kid, my dad always played it. So it's called "Here at Last, BG's Live." I want to say that there's two sets of ellipses there. <laughs> okay, so it was recorded December twentieth, nineteen seventy six. Released in May seventy seven. I love the record, but then we move on to. Saturday Night Fever 1977. Just some stupid soundtrack that they were asked by Robert Stigwood to contribute a few songs to based on a stupid article in a magazine. Mm -hmm. So they said begrudgingly, or maybe not begrudgingly, I'm kind of making this story up as I go along, except for the facts. Um, Sure, here's a few songs we were working on. Mm -hmm. And a legend is born. Yeah, it's hard to understate how omnipresent Saturday Night Fever was and how much of a smash hit it was and how much the world... 40 million copies. And I want to say it's the second biggest selling soundtrack of all time, but it's a double album. You know, my dad's a singer. My dad was in the nightclub business singing at the time you know, and, and did for many, many years. And we lived in South Florida. We lived in Fort Lauderdale, just a, a you know, 20, 30 miles north of Miami. And um, I mean, the world was just like Saturday Night Fever. It was right. like it, that. It was, you know, everything seemed to have that um, th- that that kind of patina to it. That that kind of glamorous late seventies. And the funny thing about it, or the apt thing about it, is that in '67, when Sgt. Pepper seemed to change everything and create a summer of love, they've been aping the Beatles or just kind of riding through that shadow. I don't mean to even sound pejorative about it because they're so good at it for many years. And now they create their own phenomenon cycle. Yeah. I mean, they were, you know, disco, you could do a whole podcast on just the the rise and fall of disco alone. Um, And in fact, there is a very good episode um, of the podcast, um, You're Wrong About, that talks about disco demolition night. And the rise of disco as a, you know, in the in the clubs and as an underground kind of phenomenon, and then its explosion into popular culture, and you know, disco demolition night, how that was like the backlash against disco, 
which is really kind of a which was really kind of a racist sort of backlash against disco, which was black music. Um, you know, the the Bee Gees were the commercial avatars of that. Um, and then when it came down, it, 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 they really kind of fell the very, 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 very hard. And, and which is not the, here. Now, here's the crazy thing about that. OK. OK. So Saturday Night Fever becomes the embodiment, maybe the pinnacle, maybe like we're just over the hill with regards to disco. OK. It becomes synonymous with it. They're on the cover along with John Travolta. Mm-hmm. There's only five songs that they wrote that are in the movie and four of them are performed by the Bee Gees. Yeah, it's really kind one of, of them's side, not even performed by the Bee Gees. Right, it's really only side one of of uh, Saturday Night Fever that is um the like new Bee Gees material. Because, you know, a lot of that record is just like, you know, pointless elaborations on a theme. There's not a lot there's a bunch of filler the whole record's great because it's of its time and it's right. a document. Yeah, there's other stuff on it like uh, a fifth of a Beethoven, fifth, the, the Always and Forever, the Tavares ballad, right? Um, the Tramps Disco Inferno, I think, is the second best thing on the record, other than the Bee Gees. Right. Now, the the if you um, the the actual co- if you possess a copy of the vinyl album itself, it's a wonderful artifact to own. It's kind of, it feels like owning a Rubik's cube or like a Darth Vader action figure or, or something. Rock. It was just everywhere. You know, yeah. I, I kind of treasure my um, original dog-eared copy of it. Yeah. Um, before the movie came out and, and was really a, uh, you know, became a huge hit and a, this huge cultural phenomenon. The first single from it was how deep is your love, a ballad, and maybe their very greatest song. If you sit down at a piano and figure out the chord changes to How Deep Is Your Love, that is a beautifully written song. The o- the opening alone of that uh, is just such perfection. You just never really often get that in a song. I mean, it's very, very special. Yeah, that, that song has aged very well. It still sounds great. Um, that is probably my, that's got to be my favorite. That's my very, yeah, that's like some of their very greatest song, really. Um, yeah. And it was, you know, huge hit. But then you got Staying Alive. Right. I mean, which, all the songs on side one that they released, except for one, went to number one. Um, the only one that did not go to number one was More Than a Woman, or as I like to call it, Bald Headed Woman. <laughs> um, oh, man. But uh, yeah, that that song surprisingly was not really a smash hit. That was a top 40 hit. But all not, of them but, are um, great. You got but, Staying Alive, How Deep Is Your Love, Night Fever, More Than a Woman, and then sung by Yvonne Elman, you have If I Can't Have You. Right. Which, and they're uh, all uh, great. Yeah, if I Can't Have You is a, a, a d- d- definitive... I don't want nobody, baby! <laughs> it's a definitive uh, disco format kind of it song. It is fucking awesome. Great song. Great hook. Look, it's definitely... it's so bulging at the seams it's so you know glutted with filler uh it would have been an insanely good single album uh with the bg's tracks on side one and a couple instrumentals leading into boogie shoes and disco inferno on side two just my own personal opinion however just the essential tracks five stars yeah, unquestionably. five stars five stars i mean forget yeah, about it five stars yeah yeah get out of here i know i know so now these guys are riding so high that almost nobody has experienced success like this. Now, all of a sudden, I want to do a tendril that sneaks out because Barry takes on 
a different persona. He now becomes a, a writer and producer and star maker. So uh, he's sort of like a uh, like Max Martin, like, like a, a Svengali, Doctor Luke kind of guy, where he's like writing and arranging and producing these songs, singing on them sometimes. He's got his finger pressed right on the zeitgeist. Everything he touches goes to gold. So at first, it's Samantha Sang, emotion. I love this song. I've always loved it. Written by Barry and Robin. Bee Gees in the background singing. Samantha Sang sings that song, sort of. Yeah, you did. It's really Barry <laughs> puts it over. Yeah. In the uh, choruses, it's really just uh, it's a Bee- it's a Bee Gees song, very thinly veiled as somebody else's. I've there. always loved it. I can't believe they gave such A-class material out. That's the thing. He was just really on fire. Yeah, it's a you know first-rate disco ballad. Smash it, went to number two, five stars. I want to talk very briefly about Andy motherfucking pipsqueakin' bib. The cousin Oliver of the Bee Gees. <laughs> yeah. So, in my opinion, the songs that Gibb had were mainly uh, Barry's tired cast-offs. By the way, Samantha sang Emotion, five stars. Uh, so these are mainly, I believe, uh, Barry Gibb's tired cast-offs he gave to his poor brother. So like a like a shitty Oshkosh Bagosh overall hand me down. Uh, Andy Gibb in nineteen seventy seven got I just want to be your everything. That went to number one. In my opinion, BG's light. Never loved it, but it'll do in a pinch. You know, the the Andy Gibb songs, the the ratio of like how big of a hit they were is is uh, directly proportional to how good the song is. Right. The ones that are bigger hits are, seem like the ones that are better. Um, that song I give three and a half stars. I give that four stars. That's probably my, it's got to be my favorite. I like that one. Um, then in 77, Love is Thicker Than Water, another number one hit. Serviceable. This fucking stinks. I that give it one and a half stars. Serviceable. I gave it three stars. No fucking Not way. amazing, but. Holy shit. Shadow Dancing, number one. Another, my another my notes. For Andy. My notes, no. It just says no. No, I, have, I, I like this. I give it Shadow two Dancing stars. is fucking catchy. You know what starts happening here is I feel like the studio results are a little bit rushed. So there's a very thin and cheese like synth well, line that starts to. Um, float through the records. Yeah, these are all kind of pot boilers. They're kind of cranking these out pretty fast. There's a bunch of them. There's so many hit singles in this short amount of time. Shadow Dancing is catchy, though. I, I, I give it four stars. I give it two. 1978 in Everlasting Love went to number five. Inessential. One and a half stars. Two stars. 1978, Your Love, Don't Throw It Away went to number nine. We're slipping. Good song, though. Written for Saturday Night Fever of an obviously higher quality than the lead-up would suggest. Four stars. <laughs> Four stars for me. Kind of a pedestrian verse, but big, great. Hook. Somehow this one works. Well, okay. 1980, Desire went to number four. It was intended for the Spirits LP, and it's one of only two tracks to feature all four Gibb brothers on it. His last top ten. Two and a half stars. Uh, I gave it two. It seems like uh, these are starting to have an expiration date on them. Disco is... And Same that's all thing. I want to deal with with, with that's Andy more Gibb. than enough Andy Gibbs. Yeah, no more, please. All right, 1978, the Grease soundtrack. Let's just talk about the one song. The other and the thing, phenomenon so of Gre- Grease. yeah. So Grease is the other thing that is just like uh, has completely taken over the world. I mean, I guess John Travolta and the Bee Gees are kind of inexorably linked at this time. So it's they're all up in this Grease soundtrack thing too. It's part of the. Uh, the 1970s, 1950s meld. Right. <laughs> right. It, yeah. Like Shana. Shana, Happy yeah, Days, yeah. and uh, 
like the Venice boomers really like and like the eighties with the sixties with the instant instant nostalgia eighties with the sixties. It's a well, there's also there's seventies sixties too. The hair soundtrack is nineteen. Well, but the thing is, everything in the seventies was sixties bleed over that just came out sideways. Yeah, why the fuck that a disco song was chosen for the theme to Greece? Um, How cool is that? I never really will understand. I know, but it, but he pulled that off and nobody even noticed because this is the first time I'm having this conversation and I've been familiar with. This this fucking song for about 40 years. I noticed. <laughs> it always seemed weird to me. I mean, not at the time. At the time, yeah, it made yeah. sense. But um, why is it a disco? I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. But it's a great song. It's good. I gave it four stars. I give it five. It's a little bit campy. It's, it's cool. All right. Now, let's talk about the first pin in the balloon. We're still in stu- superstar status. But <laughs> what happened was the producer... Uh, ran rampant. So, well, the, the, Robert Stigwood, the manager. So he decided, I want to redo Sgt. Pepper as a movie and have the Bee Gees and a bunch of other dissimilar artists together in a in a whole bag of stew and shake it this up. This is not a pin in the balloon. This is like a cannonball <laughs> shot yeah, into the yeah. balloon. I mean, I guess it's funny how much this sucks, but it's also got a mild what-the-fuck listenability factor. I would never... This is the... For Discograffitis, the only time I've ever listened to this straight through without without squirming out of it. Um, There's a lot of things about it that are weird. There's a lot of yeah, elements yeah. of it that are very strange. First of all, all the Frankie Howard and Sandy Farina material is complete garbage. Well, okay, so there's a movie attached to it, and the movie has some plot where it's like they're Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and Peter Frampton is Billy Shears. And, then and like, George Burns does Fix in a Hole. George Burns is like God or something. <laughs> it's unbelievable. <laughs> Mr. Kite is involved and like Mr. Must. All the like like dumb characters from all the Beatles songs are in it. <laughs> Lovely Rita's in it. Like, you know what B- the Bee Gees blamed on the decision to do this? Mainly drugs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were well, like, that, oh, we were all does, struggling with that, drug addiction. That does explain a lot. <laughs> so George Martin produced it, and a lot of the uh, productions of the songs are kind of like weirdly faithful to the Beatles originals. So on some things, like I don't like you know the on the like the title track, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, they're playing it like pretty much exactly note for note like the original, and they're all good musicians. It's like they have like it's all top session guys like Bernard Purdy and like. You know, the, the guys from Toto were playing on this. It's all like A-list top call session players, but it's terrible. Like it's 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 like it, the magic of the it, it just it's so obviously worse by so many miles. Even though they're playing the same parts and trying to pull it off, it's 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 a weird like ego trip George Martin thing too. It's like you know, yeah, I'll produce this, but everything's got to stay like weirdly super faithful to the originals. Like, there are some pro- there's some things they try to reinvent, and those Listen, are even there- more strange. <laughs> There, the, you know, there's all these projects around this time in all different forms of media that were birthed from cocaine. This is one of them. There's, you know, what else is a really fascinating one is the 1980 Popeye movie by Robert Altman. Right. Apparently, that was the location was actually uh, found because it was a famous port for co- for cocaine. <laughs> So the whole fucking set was just an excuse for cocaine. We'll go make a movie right at the source. So we can get it yeah. straight off the boat. It's like getting really fresh fish or something. It just shoots out in a geyser like uh, <laughs> like you're at a waterfall or something. 
Um, yeah, you gotta you gotta love conceptually this kind of stuff, but the actual stark reality of sitting down listening to it. What was the uh, Beatles' involvement in this? Did they give permission for this? Zero. Or? Well, I have no. I, I mean, they probably get a royalty. There probably yeah. had to be some sort of permission that they had to give to use their intellectual property to make a movie out of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess unless Dick James vacuumed up all. Nobody really talks about their role in this atrocity. <laughs> Dick James got uh, higher grade steak meat that year. I think that's probably what happened. So uh, there were only two two songs in this album that I could actually pluck out that I'd say are worth saving. That would be, and I know you'll disagree with me on this one, Robin Gibbs' Oh Darling, I actually <laughs> liked. And Earth, Wind & Fire's Got to Get You Into My Life is a natural. Now, okay, so that one's pretty good. The Earth, Wind & Fire one's, you know, and notably not produced by George Martin, the only thing on the record that was not produced by George Martin. Hmm. And it was kind of like, not really, it didn't really have, it seemed to have anything to do with the film. They just covered it. Um, you know, they're good at music. They weren't trying to do some faithful cover of it. And it's a kind of a, it's kind of a soul R and B song anyway, fit suited them. Well, that's fine. Um, the, I, the whole, uh, the, just the, the whole concept of this, and the, the Bee Gees are kind of not really very prominently on it. They don't really, most of the songs that they appear on are backup singers to Peter Frampton. There's a bunch of music hall razzmatazz that's in this. That's just such inessential listening. It's, yeah. I mean, this is, it's not just bad. It's a, it's a desecration of something. It it's, is. It's aggressively bad. I, I give it one star. I give it zero stars. Really? This okay. is, if this is the kind of thing to me that's like, I want, like a special kind of album to give zero stars to, and this this really earns it. The one, I don't really the one star, it, the one star for me is just for the conceptual what the fuck thing that gets yeah. my wheels spinning. I don't really consider it a Bee Gees album. Like no, they, no, they are no. kind of participating in it, and they were. This is not as, a contender for worst album. Yeah, no, that doesn't count. And that I agree. Okay, it's, not, so, it's not truly a Bee Gees album. So but. moving along to uh, to closer. But, so this did a lot of damage to them. I feel or they say it did. They still had some pretty big hits. They still were like. Uh, they still rode pretty high after this, but yeah, this yeah. is the first, uh, this is a pretty big ding in their credibility. It was the ding in their credibility, but don't forget, the next album had three number one songs on it. So, right. you know, this is certainly not like, oh man, the wind went out of our sails. They're riding very high. So look, the album is called Spirits Having Flown from 1979. Um, it's crazily front-loaded. Like the apotheosis of Front Loaded. Mm -hmm. There's three number one hits in a row, then two more great songs, and then you fall off a fucking cliff. Yeah, outside of the three big singles, I find this record to be a little bit lacking. Still, there's some good other good stuff on it. This is often, you know, a lot of people will say this is like their best album or something. I don't really agree with that assessment of it. It's it's good. The the uh, production is pretty state of the art. You know, they had this is seventy. They're recording it in seventy eight. Well, while they're on the absolute top of the world, while Saturday Night Fever is like dominating the, the culture, um, you know, they're still ensconced at their little home at Criteria. They still have the main team around them. Um, and um, this is the kind of the, this is definitely the end of an era. Um, you know, the, you have the three smash hit singles, Tragedy. Um, Tragedy is awesome. One of the most overdramatic songs I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> yeah. uh, Too Much Heaven's my favorite. Yeah, from wor the worthy follow-up to uh, How Deep Is Your Love. Um, great, yeah, truly in the same class as great, far as I'm uh, concerned. Great hook in the chorus. And then I don't really remember much about Love You Inside Out, but that was a number Love, one. <laughs> yeah. I, wait, I think there, that's it. There are parts of it I remember. But it, I, I, when, it, when it first kicked out, I was like, huh, this one doesn't sound familiar. But then... Um, yeah, also you know, you know, you know what? Uh, something, some 
piece of trivia about Love You Inside Out. It was the ninth and final number one U.S. hit for the Bee Gees. Right. And they had, what, like six right in a row? So, yeah, that was a feat that had only been shared by Bing Crosby, Elvis Presley, and the Beatles. Right. So the the album starts off with the three singles, and then there's kind of a little mini, like kind of, they start kind of, uh, there's this kind of a yacht rock kind of bit in it. I think at this point they started publicly saying they were tired of getting pigeonholed as a disco act. So their reaction to try to branch out from doing only disco was some pretty straight up yacht rocky kind of kind of jams. And they really succeeded. I mean, the, I like them doing this sound. It's, you know, a different take on some of the more lacrimose material from it's the weird. early it's, 70s. It's the end of the 70s. The set the end of the 70s seemed to kind of go, to go the same way the beginning of the 70s. It's like we all need to cool out, man. Right, right. You know, it's like, let's take let's take an assessment here. I remember I really do remember 1979 in particular having this kind of yacht culture. You know, we lived in Florida. There's like palm trees. Three's companies on the TV. Everybody's kind of at the beach and kind of smells like cocoa butter. You know, it's like everybody's <laughs> eating kind of carob brownies and health food and shit. And everybody's playing Fender Roses. And I can almost mellowing smell out. that, dude. I can smell that. Everybody needed to come down. <laughs> We're all getting so, healthy and stuff. Yeah. So you know, here's the stark reality. Well, first of all, I give I give that record four stars. I gave it three and a half. Uh, on the strength of the first side, it really is four stars because it really just kind of falls off a cliff. Well, there's but, also one song on this "Living Together," which is kind of like the last ditch. That's, that's the last ditch disco banger. <laughs> not last, a good song, that's, but it's kind of the last disco song. Yeah, yeah. They would, they would do. That's, so, that's that's the uh, closing of the chapter on the on the disco period. It's a second rate song, but it's Bee Gees disco. They they only had one more top ten single in the United States, and that didn't come until the song "One" reached number seven in nineteen eighty nine. That was it. So so yeah, disco now we're hits, going disco into a hits, different right. Disco hits a severe brick wall in around you know nineteen eighty, I guess. At Kaminsky Park, there was the uh, blowing up of all the the records, like we had talked about. There was a turning away from that uh, to go into, I think that was just the segue into Reagan culture, for better or worse, or whatever your opinion on it is, that's kind of where it went. But uh, there was one record, one more, that I believe goes under the wire because the success of the of the record, and also because it was basically the Bee Gees with a female singer fronting them. In 1980, Barbara Streisand's Guilty. Um, so it was Barry Gibb and Barbara Streisand uh, in early 1980. Uh, he co-produced, he wrote or co-wrote all nine of the songs on the album. Um, four of them were written with Robin. And uh, the songs Guilty and Woman in Love, awesome. Mm, I don't awesome. know. I'm not really a fan. I like those two songs. I I'm kinda, not rating this, but I think that goes kind of, I don't know. What I'm, can I tell you? I'm rating. Barbara, I'm 49 I'm, years old. I'm rating dude. Barbara Streisand guilty as I give it the rating of nope. Really? Those two I songs. I give it I nope love. and a half stars. Guilty's awesome, dude. Guilty especially is awesome. It's a weird thing. Okay. So adult contemporary music in itself is this kind of a strange phenomenon to me. So, you know, we're obviously right in the, the middle of kind of Gen X. We're kind of classic straight up Gen Xers. We're born in 72. There's not really an equivalent of adult contemporary for Gen Xers, right? We're at the age right. now where, like, when our parents were our age, they might have started to listen to more adult contemporary sorts of things, and that was a thing that existed. What's the equivalent of that now? 
There's no equivalent. I mean, it's to like that, it's no. like Wilco, like an adult contemporary. <laughs> Not yeah, really. Yeah, it's the closest I mean, thing. Like, it's just I mean, a strange. Maybe mainly during like during Sky Blue Sky or something. But, but even they but, moved but out of that. not like the, the whole thing of adult contemporary music seems to not. It's a very boomer centric kind of it's thing. It's a palliative for whatever you know woes came with making too much money. Yeah, somebody who's a better expert than me about adult contemporary music could probably do a... I mean, when you talk about things like Peter Cetera, I just don't understand why you would buy something like that. Like, who's what? it for? I mean, I, I guess I, the There's thing is, though, out there. but if you think about, like, you, did your mom have this record? Did she? No, my mom, no. what? Which Barbara Streisand Guilty? Barbara Guilty, Guilty yeah. No, my mom didn't really have records. Right, yeah, but see, my mom was, the, my mom was young at the time and kind of wasn't really... Look, the, the real thing is like when I, you know, but there are, this record was a huge to smash. a time and place. When I hear this stuff, I think of my mom's parents uh, riding around in his giant Continental mm-hmm. uh, while he was listening to 10, 10 wins. <laughs> um, and then, you know, Olivia Newton John's Magic would come on right. or Guilty or, and I just. Well, I guess that's the thing. Some of those are, some of those, like Magic's a pretty good song. I, I love, think it's better than love Magic. Other. I don't know. I, I gave Guilty a spin and um, I, no, just no. Okay. No. All right. I no I no worries. Well, that's the end of that phase. <laughs> Next phase. Phase five. And then there were 20 more years, 1981 to 2001. Okay, now, so going into this phase, you know, we got to go through this kind of quickly because it's we a, do. it's pretty barren and we don't want to But not at you. first. Uh, not at first. Well, there's a couple at, of In 1981, of while they're working on their next album, which was to be called Living Eyes, uh, they wanted to turn away from the sound that had made them famous or super famous, okay? They had they wanted, had the they, same they band. They wanted to turn away from it because it was no longer profitable. That's right. That's right. We should turn to something else because, uh, yeah, exactly. That reason. Um <laughs> So the band on these on these records that they'd been enormously successful with, Blue Weaver, Alan Kendall, and Dennis Bryan, the sessions broke down and those guys were fired. Um, so now they're you know in unknown waters and uh, they got session musicians Don Felder from the Eagles, Jeff Porcaro, uh, Richard T, uh, Steve Gadd. And All the top class uh, gents at the time. Right, right. Uh, and then Living Eyes also brought Robin and Maurice to the fore because uh, Barry became too attached to that disco thing. Mm-hmm. So uh, um, there's not a lot to recommend this. And they just didn't really record. know where to go. I mean, I guess they're, I don't even really know what is, what does this sound like? I, mean, I don't know I don't what really this is. I don't know what genre this is. I don't it's think like, they knew where to go. They knew they had to go somewhere. And I'm going to be honest with everyone that's listening right now. They didn't really go anywhere for the remainder of their career. What they did was they changed producers. They tried to conform to current trends. And unfortunately, the songwriting, look... This I, is where the songwriting gets kind of tentative. The, the, right. The, the hooks right. don't really seem to be... Uh, you know, when Barry would write for other people, he could still break out a pretty big hook. Right. But on this record, Living Eyes, is almost a hookless kind of... There's nothing great on this record. The only two songs that struck me uh, were Soldiers. He breaks uh, out. He breaks out. He the, has the falsetto. He, he does the banshee. But oddly, uh, the least tired thing on the record. Uh, there's a... 
in the time signature stuff, there is a pinch of prog in there to keep yeah. the mix interesting. Yeah, I, know. I actually, I actually kind of like Soldiers. It just uh, seems like it's such a vastly different world in 1981 from 1979. Very, very. So different. much has changed. These guys, they're, are, they're pariahs almost. They're like, they're flailing. They don't know where they're going. I'll they're get, like actively disliked. It's it's a very yeah. it's very strange. And a lot of this stuff, uh, it it lapses over into facelessness. Um, you know, especially with the dissolution of that core group of people they've been playing with mm-hmm. uh, and the quality of the material while Barry was spreading himself thin writing for all these other acts. Yeah. I give it one and a half stars. I give it one star. I didn't really like anything on <clears> it. I give it one star for some like base level competency, but yeah, not into it. Okay. So let's talk about something here, Joe. So they didn't make another album for six years. Mm-hmm. Um, they knew after this, that this was a dud and they had to pretty much sit out the decade. So they went uh, incognito. Okay, so they want they seem to save up all the best material for other artists during all this time, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. They didn't want to waste that stuff on the band itself. Well, Barry it can Barry can still remain write. unheard. Yeah, Barry's still a top notch writer. You know, he's a but Barry's a real craftsman. You know, Barry can can crank out a, a killer hook on, on demand, pretty much. Still, even at this time. So we'll talk about in 1982, Dionne Warwick's Heartbreaker. Not a great song, but a good song. Also kind of in that adult contemporary feel, but a good hook, though. The hook's yeah. very memorable. It's a softer version of what the, the Bee Gees normally do dance-wise. Yes. That my favorite farming out job that they did was 1983's Islands in the Stream. Smash it. Dolly and Kenny. I love that song. I love it both ironically and unironically. I mean, you can really picture it, you know, sung in the Banshee voice with the Bee Gees singing it. And, I can you know, picture, you can picture them back singing in a, it. Back in a mall, walking through the mall, hearing it being piped through, but in a pleasant way. I give it four stars. Always a, always an anodyne to hear that one. Yeah, I have three for Heartbreaker, four for Islands in the Stream. Me too, buddy. Wow. You're my pally. All I right, mean, so these, this is, these are objectively mathematically th- these correct are, ratings. So. That's right. For all of you and for us, 1983's soundtrack for Staying Alive. Let's talk about that for a second. So I'll take bad ideas for uh, 200 Alex. Now, this is a bad idea for a movie, okay? But let's work back from that. Let's pretend that this is a great movie, okay? What doesn't make sense to me, the formula for Saturday Night Fever was felt almost like an accident, like a compendium of songs, but the Bee Gees just happened to have a few others. This, it's the Bee Gees on side one, and then it feels like it feels more like they tried to hedge their bets by filling the B side with other people. Well, you know it's you know it's rough when your when your songs are getting outshined by Frank, Frank Stallone's. Stallone. <laughs> yeah, side which two is, is actually by Frank what, what happens here. Yeah. So I guess it's kind of that there's one like a Frank Stallone, like it's like a training montage kind of thing. Yeah. That was a hit far from over. Remember that one? Yeah. I mean, vaguely, but... You would know it. You would, you would know it if you heard it. The only decent song that the Bee Gees even pull off here is Someone Belonging to Someone, but that title is just... It makes me want to I go I don't really sleep. like any of it. I mean, it's it, the, the, it's kind of the early, mid-80s now. It's 83. There's kind of ugly sounds all over it. It's got yeah, kind it's, of bad it's 80s. It's bad. It's, it's got, bad. It's got some, some ugly ugly sounds. I get, it doesn't <laughs> count as their worst, because uh, to me, it's not a contender, because it's only five songs. Mm. I give it a star, though. I gave it a half star for the Frank Stallone song. (laughs) (laughs) And then in 1985, uh, Barry, um, or let's call him Barfy from now on because he was barfing out (laughs) hits for people. Barfy did um, Diana Ross's Chain Reaction. To me, it's two dog shit 80s 
don't really connect with it. Two and a half stars. Uh, I get that too. Yeah, it's about right. Then we're into BG's territory. Uh, back to the band, 1987's ESP. Joe, if you don't mind, let's kind of skip through the remainder. Yeah, okay. So ESP, you know, 1987's a shitty sound. Just a shitty time for Just the way records sounded. Just everyone. There's no And this, this could have been any artist from 1987. You could have put any artist It was their first this. album to be recorded digitally. It's just completely indistinct production and arrangements. I mean, you can maybe overcome this if you have amazing songs, but which they did not have. Hopelessly dated. Um, I sitting through this was a real chore. I was in traffic. It was in a yeah, really that, bad, horrible traffic situation where I, w- I just had to wait like forty minutes to make a left turn, and th- that's when this was, yeah, was playing. Yeah. This that is, was a terrible day. I, look, I first of all, yes, as far as the production goes, I simply cannot get over that cavernous digital. This drum is the sound. part of making this show that's tough. Is when you're in. This is a real. Uh, it's okay. Let's just keep it. Moving, we're just going to keep going. Keep it moving. Half a star. But this, this, the material on this record sounds like the cereal left in the bottom of an unattended milk sopped bowl okay so the only song that was halfway decent is angela i give it a half star i gave it a half star it did good in europe bombed in the u.s next 1989 one okay so it's the number of stars that earned uh, right uh there's nothing good i will say this is a slightly more pleasant listen than esp slightly it still sucks, but it's slightly better. They're going for, they're going for adult contemporary radio. And what had happened was Andy Gibb had passed away from snorting too much uh, blow, and uh, because because Barfy wasn't barfing up the hits for him anymore. So yeah, the, the single um, w- went top ten. The, the it was the title track, and it's pretty much a they're still pastiching because it's pretty much an exact rip of the song "Perfect Way" by Scritti Politti. Played them back to back, right? Don't, Perfect don't, way is awesome. Don't, don't bother playing them back to back. Yeah, don't don't, don't do be that. like me. Yeah, don't, don't play don't play metal songs backwards either. I, I, I regret playing them back to back. Just take my <laughs> Look, word for it. This it's is the same fucking song. You know what's terrible about this record to me, and if we could please move on after this, that'd be great. Is Andy Gibb had died. This was their mourning album, and they can't even mourn credibly, as far as I'm concerned. I give this album one star. I gave it one star. Okay. One. The album one earns one star. That's right. That's said. Okay, uh, next. 1991, High Civilization. This was a change for the for the Bee Gees. Uh, definitely more drum programming, electronic effects. Uh, we're going modern. We're putting a diamond stud in our ear and pulling our hair back in a ponytail and riding a... This one, to me, is the worst sounding one. Because it's crazy, It yeah. sounds so bad. It's like they're and making generic 1991 I want to point out that this album was uh, 60 minutes long, 6-0 for this 11 one, songs. This one's the most brutally unlistenable one to me. This one was like really hard to get through. Yeah, it's, it's just very obsolete kind of music. I give it one and a half stars. I gave this zero stars. Okay. I, I, wanna, I hated this one. I'm going to put one song from this on the playlist. High Civilization, uh, the title track. At least they're trying to do something uh, different with nope. the time signature yeah, wise well, and to, with the new Marshall drum sound. We'll have words about this. <laughs> on this I playlist. give this record one and a half. Right. Wait, we're, we're still on um, High Civilization? Correct, sir. Okay, no, that's no. It sounds like it's like 1991. You don't give it one and a half? I, no, I give it, I give it zero. You do? Yeah. Okay. It sounds like they're kind of trying to make like, like they just heard like Seven and the Ragged Tiger and they're like, yes. let's try to make that. No, it just sounds terrible. so thin. Okay, next. All right, 1993, size isn't everything. No, In- more, <laughs> no more contemporary dance moves. Uh, this was supposed to be, quote, 
a return to the, our sound before Saturday Night Fever. Well, they quote. they tried. They did one thing that you could see. So, the first song, it was kind of you could see what they're going for. They it's like a new Jack Swing kind of thing. You know, <laughs> like they got into like a Bobby it's Brown so record sad. or something. You know, and then and then they just lift the melody. Well, they, they they go back to the banshee on this. That, that, that was the other big in, invention on this. That, that they did some new jack swing and they they returned to singing in the banshee voice, which they had abandoned for quite some time. So that that was why this is going to be like a return to glory. Also, decadence was like a you should be dancing super mix. R- right, um, and yeah. and a bizarre factoid is the song haunted house. Features fucking Steve Howe on acoustic guitar of all people, and there, there's definitely some songs that sound like they're kind of going for like a Bon Jovi kind of <laughs> kind of vibe. Yeah, it's like some p- power rock. Like. I don't know what to make of this, but honestly, it is considered their best post disco album. But it, to me, it's not worth listening to once all the way through. But I do give it two and a half stars. Ooh, that's just very few, generous. It is generous. I, I gave it one star. I understand. 1997, Still Waters. Uh, Jesus, there's so many fucking things. I know. It was the, this was their most successful in almost 20 years, and they were getting a lot of awards for lifetime achievements and they were during on, um, this time. Right, and they were on VH1 a lot. Which um, I want to say there's nothing good on this album. Like, it's all... Uh, there's, there's Half of it's bad, and half of it's eh... The, well, you know, it went to number eleven on the album charts, the on the you know the, the regular U.S. album charts, and it stayed around long enough to go double platinum. So that uh, doesn't make any. That sense shows you how me. insane the record industry is in nineteen. I'll give this. I'll give this platter of of turds one and a half stars. I gave it the same. Cool. The title track is probably the best thing on it. If you're really gonna give this a spin, which I do not recommend. I don't recommend it. And there's nothing from this that I would put on the playlist. Not suitable for any living thing. No, that's right. And then we come to their final album, 2001's. This is where I came in. Let me say about this, and Joe and I, I know, are in agreement about this, because when we're not recording our thoughts about the Bee Gees, we have conversations about them. Um, this, at least, they tried. Mm-hmm. It should have been called answer? At Least We Tried. At Least We Tried. This is where I, at least I tried. They're kind of going for a guitar rock thing. Like There's kind of some acoustic guitar ones, and then this is like they're kind of like a return to being a guitar album. It's 2001, so it's pretty late in the game. Kind of more organic, sort of. Yeah, I don't know. It's there. It, there's look, a bunch here, of different kinds of things on it. They're the, trying. Yeah. It's like eclectic. And there's the way even that one. You know that song, Technicolor Dreams. It's like '30s Tin Pan Alley. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we're all over the right, place. Yeah, there's here. some like when I'm 64 kind of shit. There's right. like some '80s keyboard shit. There's some '70s yacht rock things. There's like they're te- trying there's some new techno. Shit. There's like there's a Baroque classical thing. Here's here's the deal. They're donning all these new guises. But uh, it's creatively, I believe it's too late because they went through such a high point in those four years. It, it has to change you in, in creative ways that you that can't be accounted for. And to experiment after decades of pumping out by rote songs, it's you're just going to have the shell. You're going to have whatever genre you pick. Yeah, well, exactly. That's I was going to say something very similar. You know, they're, they were always kind of a thing that were chasing the trends. Mm-hmm. That's They were always very good at it, you know, um, but, you know, from the very earliest days, they were tracing, chasing the thing like what's popular right now. And that served them well for a really long time. And a couple of times they were sort of a little bit ahead of the curve on it. And like at the beginning of the disco era, you know, they really exploded. They, they happened on it at the right, exactly the right time. After their big mega fame, 
they're trying to jump on those trends and they're just like a step behind. Yeah. You know, they, they can, and they, 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 they're just kind of like Bowie in the nineties when he was, he had his jungle album with the yeah, I can't even really place any of this stuff anywhere near the same like level of creativity or no, no, no. Bowie was still doing good stuff. Yeah, I don't even, you know, I don't even really love those Bowie albums, but I think he's still, you know, th- th- this is, it, I think the Bee Gees and their late periods, it, they're really just like, they're chasing the trends and not much else. Right. There's right. not a lot of songs or magical moments. It happens with attached. almost every artist. I mean, remember Madonna setting tons and tons yeah. of trends. I will say some of these records that are that are kind of bad and that I don't like, it sounds like they're kind of having fun making them. Even like High Civilization, you can tell they're kind yeah. of, it has a goofing around in the studio kind of feel to it. And, you can, yeah, and yeah. the last one, this is where I came in, it feels like they're kind of enjoying They're, they're trying. Them. I give it two and a half stars. I gave it two. Okay, so uh, let's talk about the shape of these of this arc because it's interesting. So at, at the beginning, uh, they're just kind of cruising altitude in Australia, and then uh, for three years in the late '60s, uh, they're flying high, not as high as they would eventually fly. But then, uh, how can you mend a broken heart? Was kind of the only thing that saw them through the first half of the '70s. Then they were on top of the world. Then they crash landed and they kind of stayed there except for, you know, a couple blips. Yep, absolutely. That's right? pretty much exactly it. Yeah. yeah. So what are, your, what are your top three, starting with number three, sir? My number three favorite Bee Gees album is Mr. Natural. Nice. My number two favorite album is Children of the World. Hmm. And number one, my Good number thing. one most favorite Bee Gees album is Bee Gees First. Nice. All right. I Honorable wanna... mention to main course. I, it's kind of a coin flip between main course and Mr. Natural for number three. I went with Mr. Natural. How about your worst album? My worst album is the 1991 album, which... High Civilization. High, high Civilization. With the Marshall drum sound. That's my least favorite one um, ever. I'm going to put a song from it on the playlist. No, I'm taking it off. No, I'm going to put skip it back it. on after. Everybody skip it. I'm going to put it back on a second time. All right, so... Make my own playlist. I have to say that I counted Saturday Night Fever as an album. Okay, fair okay. enough. That would be probably number one if you count it as an album to me. So it's not for me. Okay. Um, my top three... Mr. Natural at number three, just like you, my brother. Mm-hmm. Number two, Saturday Night Fever. Number one, Bee Gees First. Right. Okay, so um, pretty and close. The worst album would be 1987's Thin Cavernous Drum Sound. Uh, piece of shit, mound of garbage, uh, Kaminsky Park level puddle of turds, ESP. That is a, that is a commendable choice. <laughs> Thank you. You can't really argue with that. So thanks for uh, hanging in there. Uh, this has been the entirety of a very long career for the Bee Gees. Somehow we did it in two episodes. We knew that it could have been stretched out to three, but you guys had better things to do than to wait around for three hours. Two is just about right. Two, two did it. Yeah. So we want you to uh, please check us out on Facebook, on Twitter, on uh, Instagram. Uh, you follow us on Spotify or send Apple. Send that carrier or, pigeon stuff. Yeah, follow us on your podcast network. Recommend us to friends. And uh, and, and by all means, keep tuning in. Yeah, if we, the Bee Gees aren't your thing, we will certainly soon be covering something that is. We'll be back with something wildly different. We have crazy episodes coming up. Uh, keep tuning in. I'm Dave Gebro. I'm Joe Kennedy. And this is Discography. See you next time. Bye-bye.